We're going to be in Romans chapter 2 this morning, so if you have your Bibles want to turn there, you can go ahead and do that. We're going to pick it up in verse 3 and go all the way to verse 11. Um, if you were with us last week, Cameron did a phenomenal job, our youth pastor, uh, in talking about uh, being hyper-judgmental, being too judgy as Christians. This is what uh, Paul gets into at the very beginning of chapter 2. Um, how many of you guys were here last week and you heard that one? Uh, that was a phenomenal message. I, I thought he did a f- wonderful job. I hope you've had a chance to reach out to him and let him know uh, how grateful you were for that one. Uh, but Paul's going to continue in it, and that's what I want to jump into this morning. He's going to continue in chapter 2 to really talk about this all-too-common problem of empty religiosity is what I call it. It's bad religious practice. It's religious practice um, that is practiced devoid of something real taking place, first and foremost, inside of our hearts. And so he's going to get into this. He's going to talk about empty religiosity, and, uh, and then we're going to talk about what's at stake if we ignore it, don't deal with it here in our church, even maybe if you're a lo- lifelong believer, and, and then how you can know if that may be where you are today. Uh, I was remembering a book by David Kinnaman that came out a number of years ago called Unchristian, and I love reading all of their books, but what they did in this book is they did this nationwide study comparing and contrasting the lives, the, the tangible, livable lives of believers versus non-believers, and they wanted to see if there was any kind of a, a noticeable difference between the way Christians lived and the way non-believers lived, and they found out a lot of different things, and typically I'm kind of Uh, I'm a little hesitant on studies like this because, as you and I well know, it doesn't take much to identify as a Christian. Uh, And so a lot of times people may identify a certain way that may not be real inside. Nevertheless, in this particular study, they make you articulate the gospel of Jesus Christ and then reaffirm a commitment to him uh, in order to be qualified as a Christian according to the study. But they came up with a lot of different interesting things that I thought. But a number of good things like, number one, the fact that, that Christians cuss less in public than they do in private. Um, which is maybe not that they cuss less, but they do it much less in public. Um, can you find out that Christians, we, we, we tend to give more money to the poor. Uh, we tend to give more money to Christian nonprofits, not necessarily charities or anything like that, but specifically Christian nonprofits. Uh, we tend to buy fewer lottery tickets than anybody else, right? So there's some very good markers of being a believer right there. Um, the book continued to go on to talk about some not so good ones uh, like this, but it talked about how Christians are within a 5% uh, difference as non-believers as, have, as, as being most likely to visit a pornographic website at some point in the past six months. In other words, the likelihood of a believer doing that is roughly the same thing as a non-believer. Uh, we're just as likely to get drunk as non-believers. We are just as likely to do illegal drugs or take prescription medicine that is not prescribed to us as we would anybody else. We're just as likely to lie in order to get out of a difficult situation. We're just as that likely to act with vengeance towards someone who's spited us or done something wrong to us. Uh, we're, likely, we're less likely to recycle because we think the whole thing's going to blow up anyway or else Christ is going to return first. And that was one of the things that that came up right there. But we're also just as likely to have gossiped about a friend behind their back in the last 30 days. And so it talked about a number of kind of uh, uh, really difficult things to hear. Talked about how about 84% of non-believers said that they know a believer personally, but only 15% of them said that that believer's life looks very different than their own. In fact, one person described his perception of Christians as this. He said, Christians are illogical empire builders who are prone to violence and people who can't generally live peacefully with other people that they don't already uh, believe, that don't believe the same things. 
And granted, like, that's just one person's perception, and right, it, it may not always, always, always be fair or anything like that, but the point of the matter is that there is a lot of religious practice that is going on in the world today, even in the big C church, that is devoid of something real, first and foremost, taking place inside of our souls. And it's exactly what Paul's going to get into here. He's going he's to do this thing where he essentially holds up this mirror and says, okay, Christian, I want you to examine your lives and what's really taking place, because there's a way to do religion. There's a way to practice your faith. There's a way that you can do church that has absolutely nothing to do with the worship of the one true God. And so again, if you have your Bibles, Romans chapter 2 is where we're going to be today. I'm going to pick it up in 3, go all the way to 11. Uh, if you're just joining us for the first time in, in, in this series on Romans, basically what's taking place is the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to the first century church in Rome, and it's all about the gospel of Jesus Christ, meaning the good news of the victory that's already been won for us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so the end of chapter 1, he's essentially laying out the bad news of the gospel to which Jesus is the good news, which is still to come in the, next, in the upcoming chapters here. But He's essentially laying out the bad news, and he's saying this is the problem with all of humanity. The problem with humanity, uh, if you want to nail it down to something, it's, it's this. Uh, we, we are people who suppress the truth. We elevate ourselves, and in doing so, we worship a thousand other little G gods rather than the one true God. And so there's a lot of they language at the end of chapter 1 to describe the enormity of the problem. And Paul's kind of saying, hey, they do this, they do that, they do that. Speaking of the heathens, the non-believers, which he's kind of referencing there at the end of chapter 1. And it's all kinds of things that religious people are going to hold on to. And they're going to be like, yeah, Paul, get them. You get them. I'm sick and tired of seeing all that stuff outside the church. That's the problem with the world. But before you and I can get really, really judgmental and really excited and in our self-righteousness about this, Paul's going to turn the page in chapter 2 and say, hey, not so fast, my Christian friend. Not so fast, you religious people, because you who, you who judge one another, you, you end up doing the exact same thing. And so that's what Cameron talked about last week, getting really, really, really judgmental here. And so we pick it up in verse 3, and this is where Paul gets into what's really at stake if we don't examine the content of our religious practice, okay? So here's what he says in verse 3. He says, Do you suppose, O man, that you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you'll escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of the kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that, the kind, that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storming, storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Really, really fun stuff to talk about right here, right? Now, real quick, what's, what's he talking about? He, he's very specifically talking about this day of judgment, judgment, which is still to come when Christ returns at his second coming right here. Uh, this is essentially the same scene that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 25, uh, where he's, telling, he's preparing his disciples and people that are following him, listening to him, for the return of Christ and for the end times, the day of judgment. And he's describing this scene where Christ is going to return again. The nations are going to gather around his throne. And Jesus says he's going to start separating the sheep from the goats at that point in time. Two very, very similar animals here that look alike, may even sound alike at different times, may go to the same places. And of course, this whole point in using two different animals here uh, that are very, very similar in nature is to say that the day of judgment is not going to be as black and white, and it's not going to be as obvious as God judging the sheep from the wolf. Does that make sense? Like, it's not going to be as, as obvious as, hey, these are the good guys, these are the bad guys. That's the question Caleb has every single time we turn on a TV show. Are these the good guys or are these the bad guys, right? And I'm like, the Gators are always the good guys, and Alabama is always the bad guys, right? And so you're like, um, but like, it's not as obvious as that. And he's saying, hey, two similar things, goats and sheep. 
And they often look alike, they think like they may even go to the same places. But in the end, Jesus is really, really clear, and he says, the sheep will go to my right into eternal life, while the goats go to my left into eternal punishment. But church, like that's at stake, that's what's at stake here with this empty religiosity, this bad religious practice that is devoid of anything real taking place inside of our soul. Paul calls it the day of wrath, and he says it's a day that is full of fury in verse 8. It's full of tribulation and distress in verse 9. And so before we go much further, church, I, I, I want us to sit in this for just a few moments because this is the thing that we don't like talking about a whole lot in the church, admittedly so. I, I would much rather just scream about the goodness, kindness, love and mercy and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ all day long, talk about flowers and fields and holding hands with Jesus in the end and things like that. Like That's the preferable message right here. But Paul goes here in this journey of the gospel because we have to understand the fullness of what it is that God has actually saved you and I from. And so, um, and so I want us to sit here and think about this for just a little bit. In, in 1741, you guys remember this sermon by Jonathan Edwards called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God? A right, terrifying sermon. I remember, how many of you guys have heard this before? Um, it's a sermon that I actually heard it in public school, junior high, and one of my teachers was talking about it one day uh, in a negative light. And uh, I remember hearing that sermon and uh, I was like, man, that sounds terrible. I was like, I've not heard that one in Sunday school at this point in time. I remember hearing that, sinners in the hands of an angry God. I was like, I know about a loving, gracious, kind God who forgives us of all of our sins, brings us into eternity. And, and I'm like, I, I was really, really disturbed by this sermon. Nevertheless, like this is a sermon that God has used. And we're still talking about 300 years later because God used this message to bring about massive sweeping revival at a very critical time in our nation's history. And so here's what's ha taking place at this time. 1741 is the year. Uh, it's the beginning of the Great Awakening that's been taking place. And there's, again, sweeping revival going throughout all of New England at this point in time. I mean, everybody's coming to faith. Jonathan Edwards is one of the leading evangelist pastors at that point in time. There's one community there called in Enfield, Connecticut, that was widely known as a very hard-hearted, stubborn, and rebellious community, even though they were very religious, right? This is the nature of our, our nation at that point in time. Very religious. People went to church. It was the cultural good, right, and expected thing to do. Yet this is a town that was known for their stubbornness and their hardness of heart. And they have not responded to the gospel well at this point in time. And so Edwards goes and he preaches this message there. And he steps in the pulpit this day and he begins going off preaching about the judgment of God and how hell is going to be more harsh than anything you could possibly imagine. I mean, just real beautiful stuff, right? It's just the judgment of God. Hell is going to be this bad. It's not a good thing that any of us want to be a part of. He talks about standing on the slippery slope of sin and that all of us live and die completely dependent upon the mercy of God for our salvation. He goes into gory detail, again, about the fires of hell, the lake of brimstone, which the Bible uses that metaphor to describe what that's going to be like, all the while reminding people that unless they repent and surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ, they are still going to be lost and dead in their sins, and the wrath of God will not be appeased, and they will actually be sinners in the hands of an angry God. And I'm not kidding you, church, like what happened that day is nothing short of miraculous because, again, we're still talking about it 300 years later. And this is the message that God used to bring about sweeping revival there in Enfield, Connecticut. But what took place that day is it's absolutely incredible. The weeping and the tears of repentance while Edwards preached that day were so loud that he didn't even get to finish the sermon. 
In the middle of the preaching, the Holy Spirit impacted people in such a way that they became confronted with the realities of what God in Jesus Christ is coming to bring them out of, that they're weeping in repentance. People are coming down and they're bowing down in the aisles and they're repenting of their sin and they're just and they're fully surrendered to God and all these things. Edwards couldn't even finish his sermon that day. Point of the matter, church, is there is an urgency that comes when you and I remember everything that is, that everything that God has come to save us from. There's an urgency and there's a sense of worship that rises up inside of us when we see here's what he's, here's the fullness of what, of, of what our destiny may be and here's the fullness of what he is bringing us into. There's an urgency and a joy and a worship that comes when you understand the entirety of the story right there. I'll never forget talking with a buddy of mine a number of years, um, a little over a year ago. And uh, he was just talking about how hell, this whole thing was the thing that brought his daughter to repentance. And I asked him the question, I was like, hey, do you think I preach hell too much, too little? Do we think, uh, I mean, do I emphasize too much the kindness, grace, and God? Like, can you do that too much? And we were having that kind of a conversation. And he goes, Aaron, like, this is the thing that brought my daughter to repentance. This is the thing that, that and I was like, okay, you're going to have to explain that because it sounds horrific, right? And so he explains, he goes, you know, I grew up in a tradition where we didn't do haunted houses at Halloween. We did hell houses. And I was like, what in the crud is that? And he goes, uh, we, you remember, we, were, we were over uh, in this, this part of town, and, and uh, we didn't do, we did a fall festival at the church, and we didn't do a haunted house, but we did have a, a hell house. And people, anybody ever go to a, a hell house before? Okay, you know what I'm talking about. It used to be pretty popular, I guess, and people would go through it, and it's, um, it's not ghosts and goblins, but it is the story of, of, of hell in a lot of ways. And he, he's like, I didn't know what we were going into. I brought my kids through this thing. They're terrified. and it, it, It's kind of gory and it's real weird and everything. And he comes out of that. And he's like, kids, hey, are, you, are we okay? And his daughter looks at him, eight years old. They've shared the gospel with her a thousand times, been in Sunday school forever. And she goes, daddy, is this real? Is it, you've never told me about this part of it. Is this real? And he goes, baby, yeah, it is real. It's not the entire story, but this is why God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come and to give his life for you so that he could bring you out of, it's a part of it, bringing you out of something into something beautiful and brand new. And she goes, daddy, if this is real, like I need to give my life to him right now. I can't keep waiting. And he's like, you're you're exactly right. Point is, church, like there is an urgency that comes when we understand the fullness of what it is that God is bringing us out of and bringing us into. Uh, this is part of the whole problem with the whole Rob Bell controversy from about 10 years ago. I don't know if you guys follow this one uh, very closely or not, uh, but this is a very big part of it. But um, he essentially wrote a book called Love Wins, where he argued essentially that in, the, in eternity, uh, love is going to eventually win because in eternity, you and I will have an opportunity to look upon the truth about who God is. You'll be able to repent and acknowledge faith in him at that point in time, and then you'll be able to surrender and you will eventually be saved. And so in the end, love will win. And so uh, that's, in short, uh, kind of what he's talking about right, right there with hell. And so what happened was evangelical leaders and pastors all around them began blasting the book and saying, hey, this is not true, which it is not true, right? This is a not true book. Not only that, but it's incredibly damaging to the faith because what this does is it, it removes the urgency for the goat to repent. Because if I don't, like, I, I'll have an opportunity much later on. And so it removes the urgency for the goat to repent and to, and, and to turn to the Lord right now. But it also removes the urgency for the sheep to go with the gospel of Jesus Christ and to call people to repentance. 
And so what, what ends up happening here is that you've got a whole lot of goats that look like sheep here. They talk like sheep. They may even go to the same places as sheep, but they may not actually be sheep. And, and, and so that's what, exactly what Paul's getting at right here. He's just saying, hey, hey, there's a point in time, even as a believer, you who are caught up in great religious practice, who come to church week after week after week, not that you need to be crippled with insecurity by any stretch of the imagination, but it is very, very healthy for us to hold the mirror up and to say, okay, here's what the story of my life is, is saying right here, and, and what is it that's actually true that's going on inside of my soul? And so that's what he does right here. He, I want you to notice some of the things that he gives us to examine. Here's what he says in verse 6. He says, he's going to render to each one according to their works. Speaking of the day of judgment, he's going to render to each person according to their works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality from the Father, not from themselves, he will give them eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there's going to be wrath and fury. There's going to be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, again, the Jew first and also to the Greek. I mean, anyone else uncomfortable with this day of judgment a little bit? I mean, seven different references to judgment based upon works. Where's all the language about, hey, salvation is a gift of God's grace alone that's received through faith alone in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ alone? Like, I'm longing for that at this point in time because it's really uncomfortable. I mean, the irony is he's just said, okay, um, religious works cannot save you. Nevertheless, on the day of judgment, God is going to look and examine your works. That's what he's saying, like your religious works cannot save you. Nevertheless, he will examine the content of your works. Um, And and so it's pretty uncomfortable what he's saying right here. Um, Let me explain a little bit more. Here's what he's going at. And he's actually quoting Psalm 62 at this point in time. And so Psalm 62 is this psalm where the psalmist is comparing and contrasting two different types of religious people. The first group blesses the king with their mouths, but inwardly they curse and oppose him. And so they say one thing with their mouths, but their heart is completely different. Um, That's going to be like the hypocritical, judgy people that we talked about last week uh, in in the beginning of chapter 2. They say one thing with their mouth. They do something different. They believe something different inside. The other group is going to have genuine faith and a profound confidence in the Lord that says, He alone is my rock and salvation, my fortress forevermore. And as a result of that genuine faith, uh, they're also able to say, I will not be shaken in the day of trouble. And so one group blesses the king with their mouths, but inwardly it's very different. The other, the other group does the exact same thing. Nevertheless, they have a profound confidence in God that leaves them unshaken by the things that are taking place in the world. That's when the psalmist wraps it up in verse 12, which is exactly what Paul is quoting here in this particular passage when he says, God will render to each person according to their work. Meaning, when it's all said and done with, God's judgment is not going to be based upon the emotional high that you may or may not have had at camp. It's not going to be based upon the songs that you may or may not sing at Easter or anything like that. He is going to examine the works of our lives because at the end of the day, our works tell a story about who we really are and what it is we actually believe, which does not mean that our works will be able to fu- will, will fully align with the holiness of God. It does not mean that we, there will not be seasons of difficulty or struggle uh, as we're growing in maturity for the rest of our days. But fundamentally speaking, what we're saying here is that even though you and I have been absolutely saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ alone, genuine saving faith examined over time will never be alone. 
And so even though we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, genuine saving faith, it's never alone. And so Paul gives us this mirror right here, and he says, hey, it's good and it's healthy. Religious people, examine what's taking place in your life to see if it's actually real, if it's coming up from a genuine thing that's taking place inside of your soul. And so he gives us a few marks here that I want us to look at. I'm going to give them to us all here up front, and then we'll circle back around, and, um, and we'll talk about them a little bit more extensively here in the end. But the first thing that we can look at is whether or not you and I come in and we actually worship or not. Um, whether or not we actually worship or not. Um, and and we're gonna get, we gotta go all the way back to chapter one, verse 25 in order to see this one. But in speaking about the great problem of humanity, Paul's gonna say this. He's gonna say, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. Amen, he says that. The word that he uses there means uh, in, instead of worship, he says, uh, uh, it, it's a word that literally means to stand in the awe and to give reverence to or to adore something else. And he's saying, this is the chief problem of man. They've, they, they've ceased to do this. They're not worshiping the one true God. And so genuine believer, if genuine faith is going to produce this thing inside of us that comes in and we recognize who he is and in everything that we do, we're going to come before him in an attitude of worship. And, and so this is the thing that Paul's saying is a great problem of humanity. We suppress the truth, we've elevated ourselves, and we've worshiped and served the objects of creation rather than the one who created them in the first place. Um, many of you know that we are in the middle of a worship leader search right now, and uh, we're interviewing a number of different candidates, and, um, and, uh, and so we're, we're looking at a lot of different people over here, and one of the questions we're trying to discern right here is like, is that person genuinely a worshiper of God, or are they just a performer? Like there's a way to do music really, really well that has nothing to do with the worship of God. There's a way to do church really, really well that has nothing to do with the worship of God. And one of the things I want to know is, is this person a worshiper of the Lord Jesus Christ? Is what they do on stage an overflow of what took place Monday through Saturday? Or is this just another act? Is it another job? And so we're asking things like, hey, do you remember that first time your heart exploded in worship when you came to understand the fullness of what God has done for you in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Like, do you remember what that was like to cross over and to say, Father, I, I, my life is yours, and I'm surrendering to you in all these things, and I'm coming before you with, in a sense of awe and in a sense of adoration? I want to know what your practice is like during the week. Like, how do you prepare for this thing? Is it just chord charts and, and communication and, and practicing music and stuff like that? Or is it an overflow of an act of worship uh, before the one true God? And so that's the first thing that he gives us right here. Like, do you actually engage in worship or do you simply attend church? Do you actually come and engage in worship or do we sing just a couple songs? Maybe, maybe not. Like, does your heart elevate into adoration and affection of God. Maybe that comes out in expressions of worship. Maybe it's more reverence. But is there actually anything taking place inside of your soul? And do we come to him in authentic worship or not? That's the first one. Second one, the one that we can look at here is whether or not you and I are repentant people. Whether or not you and I are repentant people. We see this one all over the place. But he talks about hard and penitent hearts all throughout this chapter over here. Blatant hypocrisy. And then again, we see this explicitly in verse 4 when he says, don't you know that the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance? Church, like, don't you know that his kindness and his grace towards you is meant to lead you to repentance? Don't you know that his patience with you right now, it's meant to lead you to repentance and the fact that you don't always get what you deserve. 
We don't always have the, 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 the worst consequences to our behavior that could possibly come out. Don't you know that his kindness towards you, it's meant to lead you to repentance. Like that's the point of his patience and his grace toward us right now, that we would listen to his voice and that we would repent now long before it gets worse. And a genuine saving faith comes before the Lord, our God in safety and security and says, God, expose these things that are in my life. Inasmuch as I'm not in line with the truth of your word, I want to know these things. I want to lay them down, and I want to turn from them as a worshiper of the one true God. I love the way Proverbs says this. He says, the righteous man falls seven times and rises again. <laughs> the righteous man falls seven times, and yet he rises again. Um, it, it, you know, the, the, the number of perfection in, in the Bible is seven, right? And so this is kind of like saying the righteous man just keeps falling and falling and falling and falling and falling again but they rise up again. And, and so I don't know if any of you guys are kind of a klutz. Anybody a klutz? You kind of fall a lot. And uh, you do it one time, everybody falls at some point. It's no big deal, right? You do it a few times, your friends are gonna start taking notice and they're gonna pull out their phones, they're gonna film you following and they're gonna post it on YouTube and it's gonna go viral and it's gonna be really funny and stuff like that. You do it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. Like that's the time to call the, to call the hospital and, and say, okay, doc, I think there's something really, really wrong with me here. And what the Bible's saying, what the Proverbs are saying is that the righteous people, they fall so much that sometimes it seems like they can barely walk. But here it is, because they have been made righteous by God, they're gonna keep repenting and they're gonna come back before him and they're gonna stand up and they're gonna rise up again over and over and over again. And so that's the second one that we can look at here. Church, do you actually confess your sin and repent of it, meaning turn from it? Try to put it behind you there by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Do you turn from these things or do you keep falling and think very, very little of it? Third thing that he talks about here is whether or not you and I are persistent in doing good. And I think this is interesting language here, but he says this again repeatedly in verse 7. To those who by practice, who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he's going to give them eternal life. Which is not the same thing, again, as the self-seeking people in verse 8 who are doing it for personal glory and honor for themselves. Uh, these are believers who are persistent in doing good because they are honestly seeking the Lord. And that's what God compels them to do. Uh, by the way, once again, this is exactly what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 25. Uh, he's just talked about how uh, the sheep are going to go to his right into eternal life. The goats are going to go to his left into eternal punishment. Uh, anyone remember why, on the basis of what, uh, they get judgment in this context? This is the famous passage where Jesus gets into, we love quoting this passage, oftentimes it's disconnected from what he's talking about right here, but here's why the, 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 the righteous, the sheep get to go into eternal life. He says, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. But church, like that's what genuine saving faith does. It is persistent in doing good, meaning it's full of compassion and generosity. Very specifically, as Paul's talking about right here, even as Jesus designates in Matthew chapter 25. It looks at the hungry and it doesn't just say, hey, good luck in finding something. It gives them something to eat. It looks at the thirsty and it says, hey, let me provide for you a drink. It looks at the stranger and invites them in. It generously gives to the poor and has compassion on the prisoner who is in need, not in order to be saved, but simply because you have been saved. And I love what, he, what comes out next in this passage right here because the sheep are looking at Jesus and they're kind of going, okay, Jesus, I don't remember doing that for you. Like, when did we do anything? When did we feed you? I don't remember giving you a hamburger. I don't, I don't remember give, inviting you into my home. I don't remember doing these things for you. 
We just thought we were caring for the poor and for the needy. We just thought we were just loving people that were made in your image. And what I want you to notice in this thing right here is like, is how normal it is for the sheep to be compassionate for, for, towards the poor. I mean, they're not even trying hard to be religious. They're not responding to a guilt-ridden sermon and saying, you know what? Oh my gosh, I should be doing this. Therefore, I'm going to go do that kind of thing out of a guilt or anything like that. This is a normative behavior for the sheep. They didn't even know they were serving Jesus, but they were doing, they were doing it and they were, serving, uh, they were serving Jesus by serving the poor and being compassionate and generous towards them. I mean, they're, they're, no one had to force them to do anything. They're just looking around and kind of going, yeah, I understand that Genesis tells me I am an image bearer of God. Every single man, woman, and child is an image bearer of God. The poor are also image bearers of God. And so how in the world can I be indifferent toward the plight of another? They're, they're, they're genuine believers and they're going, hey, like I understand that when I first came to Christ, I understand that, that I too came from poverty, there was none who were righteous, not even one person, that I was lost and I was dead in my sin. I was hostile in mind. I was engaged in evil deeds. Yet in the middle of my poverty, God, who was infinitely rich, took on flesh and he chose to become poor so that I could also be spiritually rich. So if that's the case, if that's the gospel that I believe in, then how in the world can I be indifferent towards the poor? I'm telling you, church, here's the bottom line of it, like who you really are and what you really believe to be true will absolutely over time shape the things that you do. I mean, John's gonna, John's gonna be clear about this. He's gonna say that even, that even though there's none who are righteous, not even one, if you and I are in Jesus Christ, then we are safe and secure in the Father's hand. So church, like, if that's true, if we're safe and secure in the Father's hand, then how in the world, why is repentance so terrifying to do? Why do we need to come to him and pretend like, hey, everything is figured out in my life and that there's nothing for me to repent of? Why is it such a terrifying thing? Or why would any of us live in insecurity if we were safe and secure in the Father's hand? I know that the Holy Spirit has sealed me towards, for the day of salvation. We know that that's true. We've received this gift of salvation. Why would we live in insecurity there? I love the story of Martin Luther, but uh, the uh, Protestant reformer, not the civil rights activist, but he was a, he was a famous monk. And... Um, who famously would spend the first hour of every single day in confession and repentance before the Lord. I've always wondered, like, what in the world does a monk have to repent of for an hour every single day? I mean, but he would come and he would come before the Lord and he'd say, Father, expose my heart. Let me see what's going, in and he, going on in here. Every thought, every ill motivation, everything that came out of my, my mouth that does not align with God's word. Father, I want it to be exposed so that I can turn from those things and honor you once again. But the first hour of every single day it was spent in confession and repentance before the one true God. Church, like how do you do that before a holy and perfect God unless you know beyond a shadow of a doubt who you really are and that you're actually safe and secure in the Father's hand? I love the way this psalmist describes God. He says that he is a lifter of my head. And he says it in the most affectionate terms of the Father. He says, God is a lifter of my head. That's who he is. In other words, like, when I'm not able to lift my head, that's what God does. He comes alongside me and he takes my head and he lifts me up so that I can see who he is and I can see what's absolutely true. Great example of this, uh, the, uh, the, the story of the bleeding woman in Luke chapter 8, one of my favorite stories in the Gospels. You may remember this one, but there's a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, which is really, really unfortunate because not only because of the pain and the, the discomfort and of everything that would, that would come along with that, but all that blood makes her unclean. She's not able to go into the worship service and actually worship right. She's cast off from the rest of society. People look at her weird. She's not, around to be, she's not allowed to be around other people. And so for 12 years, she's been bleeding, and this is where she is. She hears that Jesus is coming to town, that he's a healer, 
um, that he is the one true God, the son of God. And so she wants to come and touch his cloak and Jesus is coming and all the people are pressing in and she reaches out in faith and she grabs the edge of his cloak and Jesus does something really, really weird. She, he turns around and he says, who is it that just touched me? And everybody's looking at him kind of going, okay, Jesus, uh, everybody's pressing in on you right now. There's a lot of people that have been touching you. But he's like, yeah, this is different because I can feel the power going out from me. Who is it that actually touched me? And you can imagine the scene where, the, where, where she comes, the, the, the kind of the, the, the people part, and everybody's going, it wasn't me. People are afraid. They're thinking they're in trouble. And this woman comes and just lays prostrate before Jesus. And I love what Jesus says to her in that moment. He looks at this woman who's covered in shame, and he just looks at her and he simply says, daughter, go in peace because your faith has made you well. And you can imagine the weight of this moment where this woman whose head is held low, all of a sudden Jesus comes and he lifts her head up and he gives her a brand new name. And you can imagine she's looking around and she's going like, you're talking to me, daughter? And she lifts her head, daughter, who are you talking, me? I'm your daughter? Like you can imagine the joy of that moment where she's sitting there going like, no one has touched me. No one has seen me. No one has given me a second thought for 12 years of my life. I've been kicked out of every part of society and Jesus is looking at me and he's lifting my head and he's giving me a brand new name, calling me daughter. But church, like that's what God has done for us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He comes to you in the middle of your shame. He lifts your head. He gives you a brand new name. He calls you son or he calls you daughter. He changes everything. He changes it all from the inside out. Church, like that's what he does. He gives you a brand new identity. He calls you, he calls you holy. I love some of the words that he calls you. He says that you're holy and beloved. For the life of me, that's always blown my mind how God in his infinite perfection can look at you and me and say you're holy and beloved, not because we are, but because that's what he's given to us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But he says you are holy and you are beloved. He says you're a brand new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come in. You're a co-heir with Jesus Christ. You're a citizen of heaven and you're his most precious masterpiece. Church, if that's who you really are and God's done all of that for you, made you a brand new creation, given you a brand new heart of flesh inside and removed this heart of stone, which he talks about in this new covenant. If all of that is true, how in the world can we come to a building week after week after week and not engage in worship? How do we not engage in worship? How in the world could we come and be content just throwing out words and lyrics to another song or throwing a few bucks in a plate? I mean, I'll just tell you right now, church, like one of our highest values around here is that we want to be a church that is about authentic worship and not empty religiosity. In other words, we understand there's a way to do church that has nothing to do with the worship of God. There's a way to lead worship that has nothing to do with real worship. There's a way to do preaching that has nothing to do with worship. And our hope and our desire is that you and I, when we leave this place and when we live our lives Monday through Sunday, that we would be marked by, by this characteristic of worship, that we would look upon the God who has loved us in while we were unlovable, and that we would look at him with an adoration and an affection and a, and a place of total and complete surrender to him, and that we would live our lives in authentic worship and not just be content with empty religiosity. Like, like that's our desire. Like we're shooting for what David talks about in Psalm 27 when he says, one thing I've asked that I shall seek, that I, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to be able to behold his beauty and to simply meditate in his temple. That that would be the desire of your heart and that that would be the desire of my heart, simply to behold his beauty and to be able to meditate in his temple. 
We were praying for the revelation scene, this scene where John is getting this glimpse of the, heaven, of the heavenlies, and he's seeing the elders and the saints behold the fullness of God, seeing him in all of his majesty. And the only thing that they can imagine to do is to bow down and lay prostrate before him and cry out over and over and over again, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And John's going to say that they sung that, they sang that song over and over and over again because they're beholding the beauty of God. And that's the only thing that makes sense to do is to allow my affections to cry out to him, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Church, that is the goal of what we gather to do every single week, to behold his beauty and to respond to his beauty. That when we come together and we sing, we do our singing as an act of worship, not that singing is the entire act of worship. It is a part of worship, that it wouldn't just be empty songs that we sing or words coming out of our mouth, that we would lay prostrate before him in our soul and in our spirit, and that we would give him the worship that he is rightly due. That when we give, it wouldn't just be a few bucks on a plate, but we would give recognizing that he is given first and foremost to us, and everything that we have is given back to him as a result. That when we serve, it would be an act of worship to him. Again, not just something I do in order to be saved, but something I do because I have been saved. That when we go outside of these walls, we do it as an act of worship. But church, like that is the goal. That everything that we do would be wrapped up in authentic worship and not just be an empty religiosity. Jesus is going to say, seek first the kingdom of God. All the other things, they're going to be added unto you. But church, it begins here in worship. It begins here in worship. We worship him first. We gladly repent. We let the kindness of God come and lead us to repentance. And so we don't have to wait for judgment or difficulty or discipline or any of those other things. And we don't tire in doing good. Why? Not again, not in order to be saved, but simply because you and I have been saved. And what Paul's saying right here is this very simply that this is what sheep do. This is what sheep do. First century church, they got it. I love reading the book of Acts. I love reading the first century um, historians that talk about how life was for those early believers. Massive persecution. The Romans wanted them gone. The first century church had the privilege of seeing the resurrected Christ. They knew the apostles who experienced it. They saw the testimonies of the apostle Paul who wanted believers dead one minute, then he met the resurrected Christ, and then he's giving his life the next moment. They saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. The Romans came and they persecuted the early church, but the churches kept gathering and worshiping and repenting because that's what they do. Continued into the second century and Romans kept trying to squash this movement. They kept persecuting them over and over again, and the churches kept gathering, and they kept worshiping, and they kept loving one another, persisting in doing good over and over again. The Roman emperor, I love this, he writes this letter to his friend Arsatius, and he's complaining about these early believers, and he says this. He says, nothing has contributed to the progress of the superstition of the Christians as their charity to strangers. These godless Galileans provide not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. In other words, they're not just caring about the other Christians, like they're caring about the people that are outside of the faith as well. They keep free from all impurity, for they live in the expectation of the recompense to come in the other world. They love one another. They don't neglect widows, orphans they rescue from those who are being cruel to them. If they see a traveling stranger, they bring them underneath their roof. If they hear that one of them is imprisoned or oppressed by their opponents for the sake of Christ's name, all of them take care of all of their needs, and if possible, they even set them free. And what Paul's saying here, church, is that that's just what sheep do. 
Not in order to be saved, but simply because I have been saved. And so Paul comes in and he hands us a mirror in this text. And it's not a mirror that's meant to make you afraid. It's not a mirror that's meant to build up insecurity or anything like that. It's a mirror that is healthy for believers like you and me to come and to look at and to say, okay, here's what's going on in my life. What does it say about what I'm really believing to be true in this moment? And so the invitation today is to simply come and to say, Father, would you help me to examine the entirety of my life so that I can see what's really taking place inside of my soul today? We're going to go into a time of prayer in just a moment, and some of us are going to come and and again, it's not going to be a place of it's not going to be a place of doubting and insecurity. If you're uh, if you have received the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ through faith alone in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ alone, you can enter into worship. But some of us are going to come into examination for in just a moment, and uh, you're going to say, you know what, I've clung to by salvation by grace through faith alone. However, I am in that in that very very difficult time, and I think for you, the verse to hold on to is Hebrews chapter twelve two when he says. Uh, let us fix your eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, and let us fix our eyes upon him so that you will not grow faint and you will not grow weary. Some of us are going to come and we're going to do some examination and you're going to say, you know what, like, I've been doing religious things for a really long time. I've never entered into worship. I've never, I can't remember the last time that I repented of anything and that I was ever wrong. I don't persist in doing good if I'm being very honest. The poor, the oppressed, the overlooked, the marginalized, the people that Jesus talks about all the time, they disgust me. That may not be my thing. And for some of us, it may be this sobering reality that, you know what, I've been playing church for a really long time. And for you, the application is not to go and to go serve at the homeless shelter right now. It's not to sing louder and start running laps around here when we start doing worship and stuff like that. For you, the application is to very much come back to the beginning of the gospel and say, Father, I am receiving your grace brand new for the very first time. I confess with my mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord. I believe in my heart, God raised him from the dead, proving he is the son of God. I need that grace. Holy Spirit, come into my life. Make me brand new and let it work its way out in my life over the course of my days. I'm gonna invite us to come before the Lord in prayer right now, but Father, we just want to tell you we love you, God, and we thank you. God, I praise you and thank you that salvation really is by grace alone, through faith alone, and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus alone, because our, our works would never be able to stand before a holy God, that you do it all for us. But Father, I pray right now that you would speak to us, that you would reveal what's really taking place inside of our hearts and inside of our soul, that we would have an accurate picture of where we really are, that we would remember the fullness of what it is you came to save us from. God, that we would respond in worship and repentance, that we would be persistent in doing good all the days of our life, all for the praise and for the glory of your name. Church, I just want to give you a minute. Would you just ask the Holy Spirit that question? Father, what is it that's really going on inside of my soul? And for some, it may be grace, but you just need to fix your eyes on him and be reminded of that. Holy Spirit, come and make me new inside. Father, I praise you that you are the lifter of our head, and I pray that you would lift someone's head today. They're looking at works, and they're defeated. They're looking at their works, and they're ashamed. 
But God, there's no shame in you. You've taken care of it. There's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, would you come and would you lift that person's head? Would you let them return to you, oh God? Maybe giving someone faith and genuine saving faith for the very first time today. For others that have gotten just off track, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would remind them of the security we can actually have in you. That we'd be able to fix our eyes totally and completely upon you, the author and the perfecter of our faith. That you would draw us back in. That we would have hearts and lives that live in worship. That we would be repentant, God. That we would continue to persist in compassion and generosity and, and doing good. All for your praise again and all for your glory, God. We love you. We praise you and we thank you this day. In Jesus' mighty name, amen and amen.